Hello, I'm Matthew Gwyther and welcome to this Jericho podcast in association with Stiefel. As glaciers melt and dodgy peddlers of cryptocurrency go bust, we hear a lot about the E, the environmental, and the G, the governance in ESG, but rarely the S, which is the essential human jam in the sandwich. It's the stranded middle child. Even classifying exactly what it means is complicated and open to widely differing interpretations. If and when you get to create your S benchmarks, how on earth do you go about measuring them? So does the S stand for social, societal, or stakeholder, or even all three? This podcast is about what the S means for employers and employees, especially those who are at the bottom of the pecking order, who are now being heavily squeezed in the cost of living crisis. What is the relationship between business and its people within the supply chain, many of whom may be on the other side of the world? And in an increasingly fractured society, business really does have a unique platform to make a difference, and young talent is increasingly looking to work for organisations who show integrity and purpose. Unjustifiably large pay gaps and even fat cattery may be coming back to bite hard as the economy turns down in 2022. On the other side of the coin, however, while business may feel it wants to do the right thing and act in an enlightened, modern 21st century way, can that relationship become too close? Have things really gone far too far when an organisation offers to freeze its young female employees' eggs? Do people really want this level of emotional intimacy with their employer? Or do they have every right to say, this is totally none of your business, Mr. Boss Man? First off, Patience Wheatcroft, Baroness Wheatcroft from the House of Lords. Patience had a long and illustrious career as a journalist. She was editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal in Europe, having worked on both Telegraph papers, the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail. She's been a non-exec at Barclays and currently does that role at Fiat Chrysler. And she's been a severe critic of both Brexit and the current government. I think everybody is very familiar with the E and the G, the environmental and the governance side, but the S often gets sort of left out. It's been called the middle child predicament. So what does the S in ESG mean to you in 2022? I think the problem with the S is that it can mean just about anything anybody wants, which is why it's not really achieving what I think it should be achieving. The way I interpret it is that companies do have a wider responsibility to look after the good of society generally. And that's not just their stakeholders, although clearly that's important. But it goes beyond that to take in every, every aspect of the communities in which they operate. And I think some businesses are better than others at embracing that. In particular, at the moment, I think the S should refer to the, the appalling financial crisis that is now facing a huge number of families. And I think it's incumbent on companies to be looking at the way they reward their staff 
and making sure that they're splitting the cake perhaps a little more equally so that those at the bottom are actually paid not just a minimum wage and not just something that's called living wage, but something that they're able to live on. So do you think that over the next year to 18 months, when the cost of living crisis is clearly going to be acute, that we're going to get a return to focus on things like executive salaries that we've had on and off, you know, for for decades, an attack on fat cats? I think it's inevitable, and I think it's quite right. Because even though chief executive pay slipped back a little due to the pandemic, the ratio between the top and the median is completely out of kilter. It's nowhere near the historical average. And so if you look at what the High Pay Centre found, it looked at CEO earnings for 2022 and based on previous years, its calculation is that the CEO's earnings in the average FTSE 100 will surpass the median UK full-time salary. Well, it actually did surpass the median full-time salary just before 9am on January the 7th. This is a problem that we've come up against before, haven't we? And I think it's one of the examples where the United States leads the way in those sorts of differentials where you have fantastic wealth there. But there seems to be a sort of a difference in attitude between us in Europe and the States when it comes to those sorts of things. And that's been there for a long time, hasn't it? I think for quite a long time, actually, that difference in attitude largely disappeared in this country. I mean, in the States, And I think it's very easy to be broad brush about this, but certainly in the States, traditionally, there's been a a view that one doesn't envy the guy at the top. One simply tries to compete with him. And in this country, the green-eyed monster has probably been a little stronger and the competitive urge rather less so. But in the States now, poverty has become so badly entrenched in some communities and it's not really talked about in the States, it's not seen on mainstream media, but but you know, and I know that people are living in the most appalling conditions um, with dire health issues, and the state support there is, is worse than it is here. In this country, I think that people have been ambivalent about wealth. There have been protests over executive pay, But then we've also had governments, Labour governments, that have said they're very happy about people becoming filthy rich. And we've had tax structures which actually enable people in private equity, for instance, to make enormous sums of money in relatively short times. And because of social media, in part, inequalities have become much more pronounced much more visible. And I think they are damaging society now. I think that one of the problems with the S is the metrics, isn't it? It's how to measure and define because it covers such an enormous panoply of areas. It's moved from sort of simple health and safety to well-being, diversity, 
inclusion, gender pay gaps, human rights, that whole sort of area of organizational behavior within business, hasn't it? And so it's quite difficult to get a grip on it, isn't it? And to know how well these individual corporates are doing. We really do need to change the thinking in businesses. I mean, you all have seen this week that Goldman Sachs is saying that it's actually going to do away with limits on holiday time. Now, I haven't seen the full details of this policy, and I suspect that it doesn't apply to the people who are on annual salaries or working in the post room or the PAs who are essential but are not seen as the, the real big earners, of course, for, for Goldman. And the argument is that while this sounds wonderful, you know, here we are, we're really looking after our, our people. We're saying to them, we don't want you to suffer burnout. Go and take as much holiday as you want. There's evidence that in companies that have actually adopted this policy, the fear of being seen not to be pulling one's weight is actually inspiring people to take less holiday rather than more. It's all very well saying something like that, but within a culture of an organisation like Goldman's, where, for example, with the working from home issue after the pandemic, they were one of the first to come down hard and say, you've got to be in the office. We want you, you know, there. It was presenteeism. So there are a lot of subtle ins and outs with this, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. And I think that what people may be trying to do, and that that's one example, is to get the brownie points for doing the caring thing, whilst actually knowing that it will be something beneficial to the business, because people will stay at their desks. Actually, it's arguable whether it's beneficial to the business, because if people do work so hard that they, they suffer burnout, it's not good for the business, and it's certainly not good for the community. I think one of the interesting things that we've seen over the last few months as well with the cost of living crisis is the contrast in response from large, mature businesses such as the retailers, the grocers, and the sorts of things they've done and said about food banks, and then contrast that with the sort of unfortunate sound bites that we've had this week from government people about people needing to work harder and get better jobs and stuff like that. It seems to me that there's a sort of a combination of immaturity and sort of almost tin-earedness about the sort of discourse that we get from many people in politics at the moment, which seems to me to sort of contrast many of those sort of more mature and enlightened things that are more quietly thought and sometimes said by people running businesses. Well, of course, you're absolutely right about those totally crass remarks that came from the MP who thought that uh, the problem to food poverty was a better knowledge of how to cook and how to budget. Um, I'd like to see him trying to budget on the amount of money that many people have to play with. But I slightly take issue with you on pontificating albeit quietly, business people too. I was struck this week to hear, well, it was last week actually, Stuart Rose say, we need to worry about those on lower incomes. They're really struggling. He's right, of course. He's chairman of ASDA. ASDA actually 
was the last of the big supermarkets to increase its basic wage. The others had all lifted their, their minimum wage, which is now equivalent to national living wage, to £10.10. Asda actually decided to put it up to 9.66, but then it was shamed only later into lifting it to the same level as, as others, which is £10.10 10 an hour. But Matthew, £10.10 10 an hour is really not enough to live on, is it? No. It, it works out at £21,008 a year. Now, to try and feed a family on that and pay for accommodation and pay for increased energy costs is clearly impossible. But so many of our families are now in work and in poverty. And so although business people may be saying the right sympathetic things, I do query whether they're doing the right things. So to, to put it quite graphically, Take a business where the chief executive is paid a hefty whack, where shareholders are getting a decent dividend, but the people on the shop floor are reliant on universal credit to bolster the wages that they, they get. And that's true for very many working people now. It's all very well to call on the government effectively to restore the £20 a week universal credit, which was, in my view, cruelly taken away just as inflation was beginning to bite. But if those companies are paying high executive salaries, paying dividends to their shareholders, while the basic workers there are having to go for universal credit, then that's tantamount to the taxpayer subsidising the executive salaries and subsidising the dividend. And there's something not quite right about that. Next, Penny DeValk has long experience working in what HR people call the people space. And she's now a digital nomad speaking to us from Seattle with a large following for her executive coaching and mentoring practice, which specialises in bringing young women up the executive leadership ladder. The yes has remained very vague and quite what it means and what companies who want to do well in this area should actually do when they're seeking the path to virtue. So what broadly are your, are your thoughts about the conversation in the last few years and the direction it's moving in? I think companies have made great progress in disclosing environmental impact, governance, standards, but you know the same can't be said for social impacts. And you know I do sort of see it as a bit of the middle child in the middle of ESG. And the reasons for that I think are because it's ambiguous and vague. But I think the rise of the social pillar which is, you know, is really is a very important for organisations to start taking notice of. And I do think that post-pandemic, 
that there is an even sharpened view of having to broaden our range of stakeholders and, you know, including human rights, health and safety, employee engagement and satisfaction, diversity and inclusion, ethics, security. It's really asking how does the company treat the people that interacts? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's sort of the heart of it. Um, you know, we're always, as organizations, building our reputation. And the reputation uh, a company fosters with people and institutions and in the communities we do business with is becoming really, really important. This has all been bread and butter to people who work in the HR area for decades, hasn't it? I mean, why are companies sort of wondering about their societal impact? Why are they suddenly worrying about purpose? Why are they suddenly concerned about the welfare of their employees? We've been talking about this for decades. And right back to the quantification is a challenge right back to you know we were all 20 years ago talking about the service value profit chain trying to link people to uh, value creation but you know we do know increasingly that evidence shows that companies that do pay attention to not just ESG but you know social it's not a drag on value creation but it's you know quite the opposite but it's really a challenge. And I, I don't even pre-pandemic, it's, you know, until recently, I think business thought they did good by sort of doing well, you know, and they treated their shareholders' need for profit as, as really paramount. And that was their purpose. And it's a classic free market model. We were all trained in our business schools to do that. But it it just assumes that by delivering great you know, goods and services and optimizing employment will create the means and the wealth that then put that into good causes. But, and you don't really have a, a real social burden. But I'd say in the last decade, that model is really under huge pressure. Investors and workers are really not happy anymore with that. They expect, certainly employees expect, to work in a place that reflects their values much more than their parents' generation. So that has really shifted. I think it's a a complex cocktail of that, generational shifts, of our interconnectedness now, our global impact, and the fact that, you know, even social media, the surge we can get, Mm. the polarized views, often, you know, public pressure can build faster and reach further now. So organizations are much more aware of reputation and it's just about broadening the range of stakeholders. So I, I often think of the S less as social because that can be really confusing and, and think of S as stakeholders. Mm. Who are all the people out there? Now, one of the things that you specialize in is leadership, coaching and mentoring of younger women in business, don't you? And so I'm wondering how that sort of changed things, how moving towards a sort of 50-50 balance in leadership roles in businesses, as we hope and assume will happen sooner or later, how that you think might change sort of attitudes within business more broadly? The feminization, if you want to put it like that, of leadership is really taking a long time to hit. The challenge is we still know that think leader, think male is still pretty much endemic. 
And so women do get these speed bumps on their way to senior leadership as soon as they need to exercise their authority, uh, etc. So I'm not sure. Let's hope, that's what we really hope, is that we can broaden the view of what great leadership looks like. So when we go into schools and ask the average 16-year-old to draw a leader, that 80% of them don't draw men, even though they've all probably got professional working mothers. Even though it's glacial, the shift towards more women being in leadership roles may well have a different impact. But I think it is generational. I think the biggest drivers driving this rise of the social pillar, broadening the range of stakeholders, has probably got more to do with generation expectations of organizations, of the transparency now on everything from supply chains. And the polarized views, you were right, is fueled partly by social media, but the acknowledgement that public pressure can build really fast and really quickly, and your employees can be a flywheel for that. So tell me, if you tomorrow got a phone call from a huge, great sort of investment fund, and they said, we know we're thinking of putting scores, hundreds of millions of pounds into this company. We want you, Penny, to go in there and check out their S. We want to be sure that they're they're doing the right thing with the S in ESG. What would the first things you'd be looking for? Um, I'm not sure I'd accept the assignment, <laughs> but nonetheless, <laughs> the challenge is how we measure this, and everyone is struggling with this. So everyone's got a lot of policies but it's, it's about how these things are impacting people's lives. And that's a huge challenge to measure social impacts at all in any reliable quantitative way. So I would go in and start looking really small. How is this linked to your strategy? Look at your people, track maybe two or three key stakeholders, people, and then try to design some outcome-based standards to measure the quantum of some of these social changes. But start with, what's the purpose of this organization? What are we here to do? What are the two or three things in terms of our stakeholders that we should try to track? What's important to us? And start with that. What's your line and what would your line be then on the working from home thing, which is obviously hugely topical after pandemic? Yeah, I think, well, you know, we've been talking about flexible working and its importance for 20 to 30 years. And people just trawled into London half asleep, you know, half standing. And so this has been a huge disruptor. So it's now up to us as the waters close, we hope, you know, never waste a good crisis. Uh, there are huge opportunities in terms of people just being more flexible, not having to do long commutes. But then we need to be really intentional and deliberate about how we attract people back. And when they're back, what do we do with them? Because I have clients who go, well, I went into work, but there was no one there. And I thought, well, what was the point? I just did on my desk alone wonder what I could have been doing at home and save myself a two-hour commute. The organizations that are, are really making this work for their people and for their organization are saying, what will attract people back? And when they're here, what do we do with them? For the people who are online, how do we make sure that they still stay included? Because certainly we saw at the very beginning, people were doing quiz nights and having virtual 
uh, cocktail sessions, and that fell away really quickly. So it's like if the, for the people who are not back in the office, how do we engage them? Because that is a huge risk on the yes side. If your employee engagement starts to slip, then uh, then you have got a huge drag on your value. So we just need to be deliberate and intentional. It's not an either or. This is not a zero sum game. That's the challenge of us all as leaders is to be able to manage this in a nuanced way. Now, finally, I suppose I have to ask you, because of the effects of the war in Ukraine, the global economy is now looking a, a lot trickier than it was back in 2019. So one of the things that you're seeing unquestionably is the request to sort of pedal back on net zero and the companies are saying, well, the E thing, maybe we've got to let that slide a bit. Do you think that that might happen with the S thing as well, that there could be some sort of backward movement on the people side of business? I uh, will be surprised if any of the ESG, I know it's it's a pressure, it's a huge pressure, and there are real paradoxes, but I think shareholder value versus stakeholders is something that we are going to have to be very careful about measuring because what's come with that is, you know, the cost of living crisis. How do we take care of our people? We know that most organizations, most companies are absolutely beyond just slashing and burning, but we know at the same time that labor costs, companies' profitability is very sensitive to labor costs. So what what do we do? How do we help people? You know, a lot of people are really suffering. We have, you know, a lot of companies who've got people in the Ukraine. Uh, How do we take care of them? How do we ensure that people feel safe with us and continue to trust us? And that transparency on the social side, I believe, is one component of that. So I don't believe it will diminish Uh, And if it does, I think organizations, even if they do nothing, will end up going backwards because I don't think the expectation of investors and workers around how companies behave with the relationships and in the relationships they have is actually going to change, Matthew. No, I I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the effects of the whole changes we've seen in the digital world over the last 20, 30 years is you can't hide anymore, can you? You know, if you've got a skeleton in the cupboard, if something that you're doing is not right, you're not going to be able to keep it hidden for all that long, are you, these days? And, you know, the risk vulnerabilities that that sensible, mature organisations realise means that they know that they that they, that they they can't allow these things to slide. If anything, they might, might well have to double down on them. Exactly. ESG is all about playing the long game and we have some very immediate crises so it will be very interesting and I think a huge source of competitive advantage for those companies that are able to manage the paradox of stakeholders and shareholders keep employees engaged feeling that we care about them and their success and uh, do that authentically and transparently because that level of trust, that public trust for companies is such a precious resource that we need to really ensure that we protect it at all costs. And finally, Ethna O'Leary, the president of Stiefel Europe, 
Ethna Leeds and is responsible for 400 people who work in the UK, France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy and Spain. She's got some really interesting thoughts about what the S responsibility should involve. Ethna's a yes to taking an enlightened concern of the employees' mental health during and post-pandemic, but a whole lot less sure about corporate showboating when taking prominent stands on social topics. ESG, with the S as the jam in the middle of the sandwich, the middle child. Let me ask you, running a business like yours, it must be pretty obvious what you're doing on the E side. You know, I'm sure you're conscious of your carbon footprint and doing what you can to be sustainable. And also on governance, you, it's very clear in your industry what the rules and regulations are and to keep to them. But what does the S mean to you in your role as a, as a leader of a financial services organisation? Well, I think that the social element for ESG for most people is, is probably the least easy to define. And we have been thinking about this, as you can imagine. For us, I think it really boils down to, to how we deal with people, as you can imagine from the social element of it, but principally the people who work with us, for us, as an employer, and the people we serve, so our customers. So I, I would extend how we think about social to, to those two big groups. As you've already said, the environmental side of things is reasonably well-defined in terms of, of measuring it and being able to measure your performance against reducing your carbon footprint. And the governance side of things, again, there are lots of laws and regulations, and we have a regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, which, which helps us on the governance side of things. Um, the law is pretty helpful on the governance side of things. So it's really it's really the social side, which I think everybody is struggling a bit to, to define. But I think it really comes down to how we engage with our employees and how we serve our customers. That's, that's really how we've distilled it. How do you get a sense of what they're thinking and feeling, your, your colleagues and employees? There has been a significant change over the course of the last three years in terms of, of of how we have been working. And not all of that's been bad because we've been forced into a much greater range of, of working requirements, working arrangements. And as a result of which, you can only really get that right by, by talking to people. One of the results of the pandemic is that you know more about the people you work with because you've been zooming into their homes You've been thinking about how you support them. Mental health has been much more at the forefront of what employers are considering and providing support over the course of the last two years because of that challenge has been something we've, we've engaged with a lot more, I, I would imagine like most employers than we, we had before. But the fundamentals of the pandemic are that you know the people that you work with a lot better because not only have you seen inside their houses, but you've also had conversations with them about how they're managing their childcare, how they're working through schooling from home, which I'm sure you've had yourself, how you're dealing or making allowances for the fact that there are 
within some of those households, people who have health challenges that you'd have to consider from the perspective of the pandemic itself and COVID itself, how you helps people cope with those pressures. So you just know more about people's living circumstances in an effort to try and make sure that the business made as much allowance for those circumstances as possible. What do you feel about organisations that we read about, such as Facebook and Google and the largely American organisations offering their female employees the chance to to freeze their eggs in their 20s and early 30s? I mean, that's greeted with some alarm by a lot of people, isn't it? There are limits to a properly defined employer-employee relationship, as supportive as that could be and should be, we're not crossing the line into making judgments about when people should start families. One of the problems, it seems to me, with ESG is that it's so difficult to measure. We know that all the sort of indices out there overlap. They can measure a company very differently. And yet we've heard in in Germany in the last week that some of the authorities there are taking action against companies for sort of falsifying ESG data. It seems to me that the most difficult one of a lot is the S. How can you definitively say that company A is better at the S, is scoring an eight or nine out of 10 than company B, which is less good? Because it's so much sort of subtler a thing than a, than a, than a tick box operation, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yes, I think it is. I mean, how would you score the social indicators, do you have a diverse population in the workforce? What does that diversity mean? Is that gender? Is it race? Is it socioeconomic? If you have a balance through all of those things that is in line with the wider population, is, is that the measure? I don't think really anybody has come up with a definitive way of characterizing it. But you could look at gender diversity relative from your from your employee list relative to the wider population. Yeah. And most financial services businesses would look pretty awful, as with most tech businesses. What happens when you engage with this is that there is a risk, isn't there, of getting involved in these culture wars and rows about wokeism and all the rest of it. Do you feel that there are risks in sort of wading in into this area? Because it I mean, I don't think it's as acute as it is in the States, in this country, but it's definitely there and sort of rumbling away, isn't it? I'm a bit less convinced. I mean, I think it is different based on the generation you're, you're in. And I, I think we would certainly find that our younger employees and those that were recruiting to be the next generation of the bank they are typically more concerned about the social side of things than the older, the more established bankers tend to be. Because I think generationally across society, attitudes to it are different depending on what generation you're in. But when you kind of stand back from it and have a look at how this might purpose and we've had a discussion internally on vision and purpose recently. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about very lofty statements 
from companies about their social purpose and their mission. Because in some respects, I'm not sure that that's really an area that we should be drifting into going back to the point about mm. fertility for younger women. Mm. Like it's just not a, it's not an area that the companies to my mind should really mm. be trying to operate in. It makes me very uncomfortable. And I think the worst thing that you can do is pretend to be more socially conscious than you are or intend to be. It is more damaging for the long-term trust that you might want to build up with your employees to front up an attempt to show credentials that you have no intention of really living up to. Would you have said that when you were 20? Do you think in those sort of societal attitudes, there's a nat natural change as you grow older and then you, you, know, you, you, you rise up the ranks of a business and have to accept more responsibility? Do, do, do you think in the same way yourself about these sort of societal issues as uh, you did? when you were much younger it's difficult to know because it's so long ago that i can scarcely remember but apart from apart from that i think attitudes have changed to it over time the longer you work in an organization the, the more realistic you are about the compromises that have to be made in order to get to a good outcome rather than a perfect outcome and you get more realistic about that when you're younger you want to devise the perfect solution, I suppose. And there's more idealism about what that perfect solution can be or should be. To what extent do you feel responsible for the youngsters who work with you? Because, you know, you've got a lot of people in their, you know, 20s and 30s. I mean, do you feel that sort of, you know, strong sense that you want to help them and get on in the world? I mean, that that's the other side of it, isn't it? I think we do feel that responsibility. I think the pandemic has also taught us that we have a responsibility to safeguard people's mental health in as far as we can and to provide them with resources if they are struggling to deal with those challenges. And do you think that business is making a generally a better kind of job and has done over the last few years than politicians and, and governments? That's too easy a sort of... When you're looking at a competence framework, if you were to take that competence framework and apply it to the current cabinet and the current prime minister, you might you might be disappointed by how they score, I think, mm. in terms of general competence. And it would be truly tragic if business were doing a worse job than government. I think business is doing a rather mm. better job than government at the moment. But I suppose that the fundamental question is, we are trying to provide a supportive framework for the people that work with us and for us. And there's a certain point to which those efforts are, are valid and, and worthwhile. Stepping past that into policy and purpose and mission, I'm reluctant to do that because I'm we're not a politician. We're not trying to set no. social policy. But at the same time, Ethna, this week we've had it suggested in this country by our government that house purchase, that mortgages ought to be available to people on benefits. And the, I don't know about you, but the first thing that made me think was, hang on a minute, wasn't the whole subprime mortgage lending in the States, lending money to people who were never going to be able to pay it back, the root of the crash and the turmoil of 2008? That doesn't seem a very S 
thing to be doing to the population, suggesting if you're on benefits that you can buy the house in which you're, or the flat in which you're living. It's an extraordinary development, but I think largely motivated by Operation Big Dog or Save Dog or Preserve Dog or Keep Boris in Power. It's a conjuring trick. It's, it's getting people to look over here and focus on people on benefits buying houses rather than focus on the fact that four in ten of the party sitting in parliament voted against him. It's a diversion. It's not the last of the completely daft policies that will be introduced in the next six months in order to divert attention away from his overwhelming lack of authority and leadership. So, you know, the, the individual policy itself in terms of those on benefits being able to buy their flats, it, 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 is, it is ludicrous, really, I'm afraid. If you want to make housing affordable, then you're yeah. going to have to build some. And they can't really find a way of building more. So there you have it, the S in ESG. It seems to cover so much flexible working, well-being, diversity, inclusion, fat cattery, egg freezing, supply chains, and even the good old-fashioned health and safety. I think one should be cautious about moving too rapidly with the current zeitgeist. It might be a better policy within your organisation simply to listen to those unexpected voices, the quieter ones, with the right level of lived experience and sufficient perspective to cause you to challenge your default behaviours and decisions in these areas. Now, I doubt that this podcast will have pleased those old schoolers who write off HR as a woolly and slightly wet pastime that rarely gets much proper value creation done. But there again, dinosaurs haven't walked the earth for several million years either. I'm Matthew Gwyther, and thank you for listening.